Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. For the first time in the over five years that we've been producing this program, we had a guest postpone an appearance for health-related reasons and simply weren't able to rush another segment onto the show this week. Consider this our Easter weekend clips show come early because, after all, the weather across much of the United States is Easter-like. Instead of a new show, here's a re-air of my May 2016 conversation with Carrie James Marshall. We spoke just as the retrospective of his work, co-organized by the MCA Chicago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and MOCA, was opening in Marshall's hometown of Chicago. The exhibition arrives at its final venue, the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, in a couple of weeks. I can't wait to see it again and again and again. Carrie James Marshall, after the break. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents Yayoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors, the first exhibition to explore the evolution of the legendary artist's iconic installations. Featuring an unprecedented six of her dazzling environments, Infinity Mirrors is the most significant North American tour of her work in nearly two decades, opening February 23rd and on view at the Hirshhorn through May 14th. Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Emperor's Treasures, Chinese Art from the National Palace Museum, Taipei, showcasing masterpieces that highlight the artistic and cultural contributions of imperial rulers in China, from the Song Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty. With more than 160 objects, the exhibition reveals 800 years of Chinese history and tradition, on view through January 29th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org treasures for more. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore rare treasures from our vault. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day, by subscribing to the IRIS. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu slash IRIS. Deanne Arbus saw the divineness in ordinary things. SF MoMA invites you to explore the formative years of this iconic photographer's unique vision at Deanne Arbus in the Beginning, an exhibition of over 100 photographs, many on display for the first time. In the Beginning considers Arbus's early interest in portraiture, which would come to define her career and reveals her evolution from a 35mm format to the now widely imitated square format she adopted in 1962. Deanne Arbus in the beginning is on view through April 30th at SFMOMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. And we're back. Carrie James Marshall, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. This is, of course, the second time you've been on the show, so we're going to whiz past the introductory stuff, some of the things we talked about in 2013, such as the nuts and bolts of your career-long project. Instead, I want to go back a little earlier, such as when in grade school you, shall we say, liberated images of great paintings from library books. <laughs> a knowing laugh. Could you briefly tell us the story of how and why that happened. <laughs> how and why. I, I, I think I've confessed that crime a, a long time ago. Yes, but, in an archives of American art. 
Yeah, but you know what? So here's the thing. I I, I think I I really became obsessed with images with with images from paintings and in, in uh, art books really early, probably around fifth you know fifth or sixth grade, maybe even a little earlier, maybe even in fourth grade. You know, after I first found out there was a place called a library, you know, you could go in there and they had all these books, books you could check out. And I didn't have any idea of where books came from, so where you could go to get books uh, if you wanted to buy books. And then at that time, I wouldn't have had any money to buy a book anyway. There was something about those books and the fact that you had to go to the library to look at them or, or to get access to them that, that created a mystery around where they came from so I I, I, I I liked looking at them and I think I noticed back then when you checked out books from the library sometimes you used to have to sign your name and it's like all of the names of people who checked out a certain book would be listed uh, on a on a sheet where the due date was and I mean after a period I, it started to look like I was the only person checking out some of those books and and in some of those books, they had tipped-in illustrations where it was like a, a, a reproduction that was stuck to a sheet of paper with two dots of glue at the top. The old-fashioned way, yeah. The old-fashioned way, I guess. And I mean, and my I guess my ten or eleven-year-old mind <laughs> created a logic that suggested that since I was the only person interested in those books, it seemed. <laughs> That if I took some of those tipped-in illustrations out, nobody else would miss them because I was the only one taking the book out in the first place. And so I did because it was a way of, of possessing those images and having them without having to keep going back to the library to get that book. But And the other part of it was that back, back in the late 60s, uh, mid-60s and late 60s, uh, they used to advertise a lot of products on TV for doing crafts and, and things. And I had seen a commercial on TV for this this kit called Decopage, Decopage It, uh, where you could make decals out of images and stick them on furniture and you know jewelry boxes and stuff like that for decoration. And so I... The, the the thrifty drugstore near our house had some of that, and then and the stuff that went with it was called decal it, which was a kind of polymer medium, and you paint that on the surface of the picture, and after it dried, you soaked the picture in water, and then you could peel the paper off the back, and it would leave you this transparent image like a decal, and then you could stick that on things. And so I started I started sticking those on my notebook, so I was obsessed with two things. One was that material the decal it that could turn any picture into a decal and the other was obsessed with possessing those images out of books that I didn't at the time know how to get any other way so that's that's kind of how that how that started so I was doing some of that myself when I was in fifth and sixth grade but with pictures of baseball players in Sports Illustrated I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot over the years why was it the thing you gravitated to were were you know Goya's black paintings and not you know some Chicago bear? Well, but I wasn't in Chicago. I wasn't you in, Chicago in Chicago at the time. Yeah. I was in so, California. You know, some Los Angeles Rams. Well, because I the thing is, I 
I was impressed by those paintings. I mean, they looked serious. And they looked serious and they looked mysterious. And that meant something to me. And you could clearly see that they were made by somebody. And so since I was wanting to know how they made them, you know, being able to look at them more often was, was, a, was an issue for me. And so, I mean, really it comes down to the fact that those pictures looked like serious stuff. And they, they looked like real art to me. Well, given the fact that they come out of our history books, I guess they 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 were. So, but they just they looked serious, and I wanted to be serious about it. And and it was in in your own way getting your hands on the objects that that you would essentially spend your career inserting your own work into. In in hindsight, were there any paintings that you? I don't know what the technical term for what you did is, but, you know, peeled out of book. <laughs> you could say stole. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, I mean, that's, that's liberated. <laughs> bluntly put, that's sort of what, what it was. Have you found yourself at moments in the studio over the last 30 years realizing that you were referencing or using one of those images that you handled in your childhood? Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't say directly referencing any of those because I I think over time, I mean I I just started accumulating images. You know I I I had a really a vast archive of clippings of pictures from magazines and from books that I I kept. I mean I kept up that practice all the way up till, you know probably ten years ago, when I I I developed a project that's a part of this show called the Baobab Ensemble. And it's, it's, it's simply a, an impromptu meeting place that's scattered with clippings from history books and art history books and art history magazines and art magazines. I mean, there's like thousands of pictures. And these are the pictures that, these are some of the pictures that I had been saving and clipping you know, for decades. But in, and when I when I finally got to the point where I was going to do that thing as a project, I simply turned it over to somebody else who I paid to cut up the magazines for me, instead of having to do it myself. But I did it myself back then because I wanted to know every one of those things and handle it as I was cutting it because that gave me a chance to think about it. So I mean, just having a collection of random pictures that I didn't that I had never looked at didn't didn't really mean so much. Because every, I mean, it, it's there's a reason why you select the picture to cut it out, and so I I stay close to the reason why I selected the thing in the first place. But when I so but when I wanted when it when it got to a place where the specificity of each one of those images wasn't going to matter so much to me anymore, then I could turn it over to somebody, and I I hired a, a you know. A, graduate student and the former graduate student at UIC where I was teaching to, to cut out some, because I saved every magazine. I mean, every art magazine. And I just had them go through the magazine and cut them up and save all of the pictures. So I don't know where in, in your growing up slash beginning to go to Otis in Los Angeles, this happened. But at some point earlier in your life, you were interested in being a children's book illustrator. Why? Why? Why that way? So before I got to Otis, 
I graduated from high school in 1973, and then I worked uh, a couple of jobs before the big recession, I think, in 74, 75, where we all got laid off when I was working for Kentile Floors. And that gave me a chance to go back to school. L.A. City College. L.A. City College to start getting the credits I would need to be able to transfer into Otis. And I took a children's literature class. Oh, at L.A. City College. At L.A. City College. But, and I did that partly because before then, I had, I had, at a used bookstore, I had come across a copy of one of those Scribner's volumes of Treasure Island that had illustrations by N.C. Wyatt in it. And the thing was, so since I had never read the book, when I didn't read that when I was in junior high school or in high school. So I, I bought it, uh, and I bought a, 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 an Arabian Nights book that had illustrations by Maxwell Parrish. So it, well, the thing was that reading those books and then having those pictures there, <laughs> those two things paired with each other made the book even more magical. And so that was one of the reasons I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll be a, uh, I would love to be a children's book illustrator in the same mode of people like uh, N.C. Wyeth and like Maxwell Parrish, because it just, it enhanced, I mean, it enhanced the book so much. It made it into an object that was worth having at the same time that it was a story that was worth reading. In hindsight, do you think there's anything from that interest and aspiration that remains in your work? Yeah, I, I guess to the degree that I I am interested in a certain kind of clarity, where you know the the images I, I think I make images that in a lot of ways can be read, and maybe in the same way that you would read a book by uh, layering levels of of, of meaning through the relationship between things and the picture. So if you're not going to have a text to support it, then you have to figure out a way to layer the things into the picture so that when people see it, they know that all these things are related to each other in one way or another and that they build up to a bigger thing than just simply uh, the, the, the sensation of looking at the image you see. I think that really begins to happen in your work in the early 1990s when you begin having more than one figure in your paintings and when over the course of one minute, three minutes, five minutes, a person looking at your paintings realizes or can figure out the narrative behind them. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that to me, I mean, you got to figure out a way to make the picture arresting in some kind of way. I mean, to keep to get people to look at it as opposed to simply walk by it. And and I think that kind of layering adds up to a certain kind of complexity. You know, hearing the children's book story has me thinking about something I hadn't thought about before, and that is it really is, it, it took a while for you to get multiple figures in single paintings. I mean, you had done paintings that were kind of painted diptychs where you had a face on either side and such. But it, but it really took, you know, until well into your career, 10, 15 years into your career, almost 20 years into your career, before you were, were able to or felt comfortable, I'm not sure what the phrase is, having many people in a picture. Why? What, what, what did you have to get through or get to, to to build a scene with multiple figures? 
Well, the thing is, I mean, it's 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 hard to manage a lot of figures in a picture. That's that's one thing. I mean, it, it takes longer to figure out how to make it work, and then each figure in a picture has to have its own attention. I mean, which means you have to do, you know, from from figure to figure, you got to do what that figure needs to do, and then you have to balance all that against what's happening with the ground. If it's a complicated ground like a landscape, then you got all those other elements to deal with. Uh, so there's a lot to there's a lot to try to there's a lot to be responsible for when you're doing compositions that have more than one figure in it. And then you have to invent things for those figures to do that make sense in a picture. So you know the, they don't just I mean when you're constructing a picture that that you've imagined. I mean, it doesn't just come all together. You got to put it together, which means that you got to kind of you got to cast it, you got to costume it, you got to light it, and then you got to adjust it and keep adjusting it until everything seems to work together. And in the uh, the the way the art world is sort of operates now, or, or the conditions of the art world now, uh, don't tend to encourage the kind of time invested in pictures that take a long time to do. And so, I mean, the easiest thing to do is to put a, is, is to put a, to simply to put a figure against the ground. That's, that's fairly simple. Or to take a photograph and translate the photograph into a painting. Okay, well, that's fairly simple. But to, in, to invent a context in which figures have to do things that makes sense and they seem to have a relationship to each other well that just takes a lot more effort it takes a lot more energy do you remember what helped you figure that out whether it was somebody else's paintings or just sheer brute hours in the studio or something else well i mean it's a combination of things i mean if 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 going back to the library you know it's like well the one reason for looking at all those books is to try and figure out how the things in the books were made. And so you you read a lot about composition. You try to analyze and study the composition of pictures you like or that you think are important or that do the kinds of things you think you want your picture to do. You try to you you try to analyze those and figure out how they how they work. And then you and then you practice it. I mean, so it goes back to the reason why you look at an art history book in the first place. Yeah, no, building up a visual memory, building up a... Yeah, to, to build up an understanding of what the dynamics are that put those works in the position where they are the ones that people use as an example in an art history book. So to return to kind of your earlier life timeline, in the mid-1970s, after finishing your time at L.A. City College, you found your way to Otis, or kind of back to Otis. And among the teachers you met and from whom you took classes were two of the major figures of post-war American art, Charles White and Betty Sarr. I don't want to ask you to recount the story of your meeting Charles White as a young lad and eventually sitting in on his class and so forth. It's in that Archives of American Art interview I referenced earlier. It's an absolutely terrific interview. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. But is there anything that's in your work now that you think goes back to or is attributable to, to Charles White? Because 
because you know in some ways some things in your work are kind of the you know exact opposite of some of the things he was doing well i, mean, I you know in a way i think my interest in kind of historical figures is directly a consequence of having spent time around Charles White. One of the first Charles White images you spoke about ever seeing was one of his, I don't know if it was a print or a, a drawing of Frederick Douglass. Well, that was, that, it, it wasn't the first I'd seen, but it was the one when, when, when we finished, when we were shown images from that book, Images of Dignity, the drawings of Charles White, when I, I took the book back to, when we got back to class and I started copying that image of Frederick Douglass from the book. So we had, we had just been downstairs in the lecture hall where the teacher had put, showed most of the images from the book on the opaque projector to us. And so I just simply took the book, and the image that I, I started to copy was the image of Fre the Frederick Douglass image. And so, but there, but in 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 his work, though, you saw a lot of images that had to do with history and with culture. So either it was music, you know, well-known musicians or musicians he thought people should know about. You know, like in that book, there's a, a painting of a man named Bunk Johnson. It's the fact that they are, he has multiple drawings of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Booker T. Washington. I mean, it's, it's that there's history was an important thing, it seemed. And he, he suggested to me that history was really important. So, so that's, and that, that you tried to, you should always be trying to make work that was about something. So those are things that I, I, I learned. From Charles White, and some aspect of that is still present in, in what I'm doing now. And we'll get to, to some of that a little bit later. But while we're still at Otis, Betty Saar, who was, who was on the show a few weeks ago, last time we talked, you spoke about Betty Saar's Black Girl's Window being a work that was important to you that helped point you or guide you toward the way you represent figures and skin and the color of, of people. So the figure in Black Girl's Window which is a flat black color, couldn't be much more different from the way Charles White drew and, and made, made figures. Were you aware of, and did you think through, the 180-degree difference between the, the way those two artists presented people and whether you wanted to go one way or the other? So there are a couple of things. So in, in, in Charles White's work, you can see a kind of evolution in the kind of formal refinement of his figures where they start out with this kind of blocky kind of construction where the planes are emphasized and the figures are highly stylized. This is before he started using photographic sources and making images that seem more photographically realistic. So that style, that early style of Charles White's work appealed to me a lot because it, it because that looked like the emblem of strength. Uh, you know, they were solid, and so I started out mimicking that style, and so and then so subsequently his work got more photographically realistic uh, and refined. But if you put that work those later Charles White works in between the Betty Saar image, which is a flat uh, silhouette on that glass, 
and the early up against the glass. Yes, yeah. and the early stylized Charles White works. Well, there's there's there is something between those. If you take those two things and combine them, then you start to get close to where I think I was going with my with the way I use a black figure. Especially if you throw in Aaron Douglas, who also interested you. Well, in, in particular because some of the the graphic the illustration work he did, I think more than more even than the paintings, the work he did as an illustrator for some books had that stylized, you know, highly uh, decorative but complex uh, compositional organization. Well, that was that's that was appealing because. For me, I mean, that looked, it, it, it looked a lot like thinking made concrete. And so, and, and that's, I mean, in, in the end, what's, what's important, what's been important to me is the way the work seems a reflection of the thinking process, that it arrives out of a process of consideration and not as some sort of spontaneous occurrence that just kind of happened that way. And so if you look at those Aaron Douglas illustrations, and I again say more, I think, for me than the paintings, because the paintings, those figures were, a lot of those paintings were near monochrome, but they were always in a range of, a tonal range of colors. And so the figures were never really black in a lot of the paintings, they, they, but they were black in the graphic work because that work was just black and white. I'm, I'm saying it badly, but, you know, when he painted murals and, or, and, and when he worked on murals that others also painted with him, I, I think the, the understanding is that the figures in them were once darker, you know, and they've faded over the decades. Yeah, it's, it's possible, but since... But the murals have always been less accessible because you have to go to Nashville or the Schoenberg Right, you got to go someplace. To go see them. Yeah. You know. <laughs> images of them have never trafficked the same way the images of the paintings or the illustrations have. And then Betty Saar. So the class you took from Betty Saar was a collage class. And, and early in your artistic career, you made a lot of collage, and collage remained an element in your paintings, both actually and referentially, for many, many years. What, what do you remember of her class? It must have had an impact. Well, the thing was, I took the class because I had already started making collage. And I had, and I had started making collage primarily, well, I won't say primarily, but in part because I was, had been looking at Romare Bearden. There was, there was, uh, Ebony Magazine had done a profile on Romare Bearden and it had some, some of those collages in the, in Ebony Magazine. And so that's where I, so I, I was doing that uh, in part because of that Ebony article. And the thing was that I had already been at, so at LA City College, I think one of the one of the great things about LA City College was that you you could learn how to do some things. You know, if you took a class, they did. You took a class and you had exercises, and when you did those exercises, allowed you to become familiar with techniques and processes and things that you, you know, you maybe you wouldn't have picked, you wouldn't have chosen on your own if you weren't encouraged to by uh, having a project to to complete using a, a certain method. So I had already done collage. I had already done a lot of things. And I had done a lot of that stuff on my own. And so the, the class, I wanted to take a class with Betty just because she was Betty Sarr first. <laughs> so by, the, by, but by then, though, most of her work, most of her work was not really collage. It was all assemblage. It was using found materials 
and using varieties of different kinds of materials and making assemblages, making boxes and making freestanding sculpture and things like that. So that's that's what Betty Saar represented. You know, more she I don't I don't know that I've ever seen a cut paper collage by Betty Saar. I don't think I have. No, I just read that the class was a collage class. Right, it was a, right. So that the class was a class. So but it was but it, but we've spent a lot of time doing assemblage and stuff uh, using using found materials. And the, now there was one. So the the one thing, one of the, the basic principles I think Betty was trying to impart in that class was that you sh- you shouldn't let anything become too precious too early. Uh, and so I remember there was one there was one project which I which I actually went against the the uh, proposition. <laughs> Was that you would do a you do a work, you would bring it for critique, and then you would rework that work and bring it back for critique, and then rework that. Keep reworking the thing so that you never got you you never became attached to the preciousness preciousness of a thing, even if you thought you had done a pretty good job with it. Except now I was already a little overconfident, I guess. <laughs> And uh, sometimes satisfied with things I had done. So, in, so I, I never, so I did the project, but I never did the project in a way that the thing that I did to the collage couldn't be reversed, so that I could. Oh, take, you mean physically reversed? Physically, physically reversed and take it back reversed. to the stage that I liked it at. <laughs> so, but that was my resistance. <laughs> and so I would, so I, yeah. I, so if if we were required to modify it, I would do it, but I would do it in such a way that I could take it back to where I wanted it. After the after this was all over, did Betty figure that out? I don't know. <laughs> that's that's so funny. You're ironic, I guess, that you say that she said never figure something out too early because she's had what a sixty-four year career at this point or something. I mean, you know, <laughs> about as long a career as anybody could ever hope to have. My conversation with Carrie James Marshall continues after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Durham's first North American retrospective, this unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham's sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Sarah Oppenheimer, S337473, and Carmen Herrera, Lines of Sight, through April 16th. Oppenheimer's site-responsive, perception-altering installation was created with support from a Wexner Center Artist Residency Award. Originally curated by Dana Miller for the Whitney Museum of American Art, Lines of Sight is the first museum survey of Herrera's elegant, geometric work in nearly two decades, and this is the show's only stop outside of New York City. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, 
the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors, and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. And now back to my conversation with Carrie James Marshall. There are elements in in the 80s and early 90s in your work that seem like clear references to to kind of, you know, new magic, world magic, voodoo, that kind of stuff. Does that come from Betty or did you find it on your own? Well, I mean, it's in from two parts. I mean, one is, yeah, you you could you could make an argument that it that some of it comes from knowing the the range of of references and sources that Betty was using and that was a kind of mystical edge to a lot of the work but also I, I had a friend who taught folklore at UCLA who I spent a lot of time uh, hanging around and talking about a lot of things and so some of my interest in folk tales and culture as history and mythology and things like that. So, well, some of that, some of that came from spending time with this friend of mine who was a folklorist. But also, I, I think, as an extension of some of my interest in children's literature, a lot of mythology and those things were important to me as well. So it's a, it's a combination of of those things, and I I always thought. Or at least there was a period in which I, I thought that if you look at the foundation of art history, that most of the artwork that was being made before the period in which capitalism started to make the artworks and art making the kind of pure commodity objective, was that most of the artwork we saw had was made for some religious or magical purpose. And so... I mean that that and that seemed to be connected in some way to the power it had. So it's a combination of all those things. And the more I learned about the Yoruba-based religion and mythology, or Haitian religion and mythology, or if you go down to uh, Santeria in uh, Cuba and in Brazil and places like that, the more I learned about those things, the more I wanted to incorporate some of that information and some of those cultural artifacts in the work I was doing. So that's interesting because right at this point in the early 90s, there were there are some things that begin to pop up in painting after painting after painting that I wanted to ask you about. One of those is religion, Christian mythology, such as the Adam and Eve story, come into the work in 90 and in, in 91. So is what you're describing, you know, is, is embracing and using those stories is what you're describing with your friend, the folklorist. Is that 
Are we are we kind of talking about the same period here? Yeah. Yeah. So is that why halos, these kind of uh, pointy halos, begin to come into your work about then? Well, but the, those 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 the pointy halo, those sort of burst behind some of the figures. I think you might be thinking of the scouts and stuff. I mean, that's later. And even earlier, even earlier. Well, um, you know, chalk up another one and. Yeah, I mean, some of that. I mean, even that the ecstasy of communion, which is a piece that Betty Saar owns. Yeah. I mean that's I mean look at it, it's a kind of a Saint Sebastian I mean it's it's got all these different stigmata I mean all that stuff I mean it's just piling on these kinds of religiously symbolic images and and symbols so I mean that was and that's still that's a part of a part of the way in which those some of those works kind of functioned like icons and so and I I kept that but when it when it comes to the scouts and things. Well, it's it's yeah, it still has that implication, but then it takes on a a more kind of pop culture function as a kind of advertising bubble or balloon or or burst than it does a religious one. Yeah, and that's a number of years later. That's I don't know, maybe twenty years later. You know, another point of engagement with Christian mythology, if you will, is they know what I know a 1992 painting that pretty directly references the Adam and Eve story. And at the bottom of that painting is a snake. And snakes pop up in lots of your paintings in the early 1990s, including kind of a folk magic-y painting, When Frustration Threatens Desire, in, well, a bunch of other paintings. Were you consciously seeking out objects or animals that have a certain multiplicity that popped up in lots of different world traditions or or did that happen just more organically? Well, I guess that it'd be more organic. But but then th- those works at that period were works that I was trying to make as a as a visual equivalent of early rural country blues. So if you if you listen to Robert Johnson and you take those lyrics and that tone, I was trying to make a visual equivalent to the kind of tone that Robert Johnson songs had. So if you have a song called Hellhound on My Trail or Me and the Devil or Stones in My Pathway or Come in My Kitchen. I mean if you I mean you you crossroads blues. I mean that I was trying to make paintings that that looked like those songs sounded. And so that kind of imagery, that kind of folklore, again, going back to the friend I had who taught at UCLA, going back that kind of that folkloric kind of quality was something that I was trying to build in because it came out of the blues as well. Do you remember how or why you found snakes? Well, I mean, it, I mean, it, I mean, it's it's a kind of pivotal figure in the Adam and Eve narrative. It first kind of came into your work because it was a Christian Christian iconography. Well, because you, if if you if you you think about what so what is the, so the serpent represents the serpent represents the devil or evil, and the 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 sin of Adam and Eve was the sin of knowing against the will of God, knowing on their own, having biting from the tree and having the knowledge of good and evil, and so that yeah that snake is a. So you, you kind of couldn't do that without the snake. No, the but you hand. could. You could do when frustration threatens desire without the snake. But the snake is no. But it also it's a recurring image in. I mean, in a lot of 
magical narrative, the snake is a recurring image. I mean, it, it often represents the, a kind of illicit desire. And so, I mean, if you're stacking up or if you filling up a picture with a lot of symbols, things that have symbolic reference, then, I mean, it, it would make sense that that would be one of them. I was assuming that it mattered to you that snakes existed in many cultural traditions and meant some of the same, but some different things in those cultural traditions. Did that matter to you? Maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I didn't think about it any, any more than the way I needed to use it for the thing I was doing. The individual painting in front of you. Right, the painting in front of me. Two other things that occur in a lot of paintings in this period that I wanted to ask about. One is collaged or painted references to ovaries. Chalk up another one, so this is what you want and soon, beauty examined. Why representations of ovaries? Well, only because that's, I mean, it's a sign of generations, a sign of fertility that links to the future. It's a way of thinking about genealogy. And that's, you know, a part of the, I mean, what <laughs> reproduction is part of what sustains a, a people. It creates the possibility of carrying on the culture. So, I mean, that's, so that's, I mean that when I use it. But it's also a, a kind of a battleground, you know, where, I mean, the, the control of women's ability to carry children or have or don't have or not have children. I mean, that's been fought over and contested and claimed. Early 90s were particularly big years politically, yeah. Well, if you think about, I mean, the years in which Roe versus Wade was being fought out, you know, and uh, sort of, I mean, you still hear echoes of that same struggle today. <laughs> it seems a never-ending struggle in part because the... Um, Stakes are high, so high. The paintings from, from this period, often paintings with ovaries in them, and, and snakes for that matter, include collaged elements of white women bordered usually in white, blue, or yellow. And, and I don't know if that's the last use of collage in your paintings, but it's pretty close. Why them? I mean, I get in Adam and Eve why them, but in, in, in what, you know, why did they stay in the work? Well, because they still, I mean, those images are from Harlequin romance novel covers. From All a, of whom tend uh, to be white. From a particular period in which the heroine is, is always a woman like those women you know, who are a kind of a stereotype of the ideal, the ideal girl next door. And so they, you know, they're not far off from Barbie. You know, they're not far off from the, the from from any any narrative of the kind of wholesome good girl gone bad or led astray, you know, by some corrupt male force that she encountered somehow. Uh, but that's still but that's the idea. They are they are a dream girl is what they are. They're the ideal that if if you take they are the ideal that is. They're the sought after, and so they and they also they also appear on the on most of those covers. They appear fairly angelic, and so I'm using them across all those different ways of thinking about them. 
so that it's as in a, in if you take them as a religious kind of icon, yes, then they they function as a kind of angelic presence that hovers a, hovers around the central subject of the figure. They exist as a kind of dreamy ideal uh, as they sort of float around in a, in some of the other pictures. So that's that's why those those pictures are there, and then they so then they, they and they function as a kind of on a level as an absolute contrast to the subject that's being painted in the rest of the picture, which which is not assigned any of those attributes. I've allowed us to um, dip into the 1990s before I ask something I wanted to ask about the 80s. In a number of interviews, you've identified a 1983 painting titled "Oh Dear Dangerfield," a black-on-black monochrome, as you've described it, of the National Guard armory at Harper's Ferry, and about the raid on it. And as I understand the history, it was your first black-on-black history painting and your first painting with the flowers motif that would stay in your work for about 20 years. I say all this, and I've never seen the painting, and I can't find an image of it, and it's not in the show. So, uh, and I think you still own it. I do. So, I I guess, first of all, is everything I described about the painting correct? Because I don't know that it is. Yeah, no, it's not the first. I mean, the first black... um, um black painting would have been that portrait of the artist as a shadow of his former self. Right, but it was the first black-on-black history painting, I think, is how... Or as a big painting. But then, before that painting, though, well, so before that painting, I had also done the Two Invisible Men Naked. So that Two Invisible Men Naked was, like, from 81 to 82 or something like that. So so then, is Oh Dear Dangerfield your first big history painting? So, well, you know, but I... I I guess I think of the two Invisible Men painting as a kind of history painting too, even though it doesn't have oh, the same in a different kind way. Of, yeah, it, it doesn't have the same kind of a subject. But it's it's and it's not the first painting I ever did that was connected to a revolt against slavery, because I had done a number of Nat Turner things. But this was the first painting in which, well, you know, in a way, it's it's the first painting that that I did as a history painting that didn't have as its central subject a black figure. I mean, the, the raid at Harper's Ferry was mostly white guys. Right, Well, and, and some free blacks and some escaped slaves. But the thing is, that, and there's only, there's a head of a figure uh, of, a, of a black man's head up near the top of that painting, that sort of a disembodied head. But it's otherwise just that the silhouette of the building as the kind of central subject of the, of the painting and the the title of the painting it's it's oh dear dangerfield it's a plea rather than an expression of surprise because it's it's based on the letter that was found in the pocket of dangerfield newby who was one of the men who accompanied J- john brown on the raid and he was the first person killed i think it's the only part i think it's the only words that made it into the letter <laughs> well no no, it's it's a it's a letter from his wife, who he was had, oh. been, had been hoping to free from slavery, first by buying her from her owner, but he kept changing the terms and reneging on the deal, and so in a last ditch effort, he joins up with John Brown in the hopes that maybe they could free her, but she he has a letter in his pocket from her which starts out, "Oh dear Dangerfield." Please come quickly. I'll keep. Please come soon. I think is the way it's, the way it goes. <laughs> so that's and I just that 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 plea 
was you know was just was such a poignant expression of of a certain kind of anguish <laughs> that it that's what struck me and it made me do that want to do that picture in which you know we could we could at least reflect on i mean the tragedy of the circumstance i mean and that's sort of all the way around <laughs> you read it as as failed rebellions go I mean, the John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry was a fairly tragic, <laughs> tragic situation too. So it's it's it was well-meaning, but fatally flawed. You know, it's enough of a tragic, dramatic story that American painters have dipped into that story for generations, and it sounds like a fairly pivotal or key painting in your own developmental arc. I don't know how much control you had or didn't have over what's in the retrospective, but I, I, I'm, I, is there a reason it's not in it? Well, I, I, I took no <laughs> responsibility for the selection they made in the retrospective. So it's, it wasn't in your hands? No, that, that was out of my hands. I mean, it, you know, retrospectives can only be of a certain size. So you kind of can't put everything and you got to figure out what they they had to figure out what kind of story they wanted to tell and to figure out which works they thought that did that the best. So I didn't and that was one of the conditions of of participating in the retrospective was that I submit to being curated. <laughs> Not everyone does that anymore. <laughs> no, except I had never done it before. So it was easier not to do. <laughs> yeah, well and what I'm what I'm what I'm interested in is how somebody else perceives the value in what I've done. I could tell you all of the things that I think are the best, but what really matters to me is what somebody else thinks is worthwhile and and the story that they are willing to, to try and tell uh, with the work. That's, I want to see that too. Because that's that that reveals something to me about the relative success or failure of my objectives. That if 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 my if what I'm trying to do, and how the people who are supposed to be experts in the field, who are curators, and how they perceive what I've done, if those things don't match up, then one of us has some work to do. And then the way it's, I mean, I, since I take responsibility for the pictures I make and that they are not just vague, open-ended, undirected sort of things that I'm just throwing out, it matters whether I've been able to construct the kind of of perception that I, I, I that's important to me. So I need to know whether I did, I achieved that or not, or whether I missed the mark myself. You have addressed slavery in your work almost since the beginning, and at different points in your career, you have addressed it with in different ways, either by making work about individual slaves, by making work about the Middle Passage, and, and, and so forth. And understanding that, you know, different things grab your interest at different times, have you ever thought through, here is what the arc of my career is going to be, and I want to make sure I address these different parts and elements of slavery in it, or has it all just been, you know, what you felt like doing on May 3rd, 2012? I, I think I feel fairly rationally directed 
that I'm, I'm choosing things that I think have a certain kind of resonance and that I think are worth thinking about. So if we if you you go back to the to the old dear Dangerfield painting and as you said a, a number of artists have looked at the 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 John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry, but they tend to focus on John Brown. And so what you can see in my approach to history is that I'm on the one hand mostly interested in in some of the black protagonists in the narrative. And I'm also, I have a tendency to look at the history in a fairly, from a fairly oblique angle, where I'm, I'm not so much interested in recasting the story that's always told, but looking at, a, trying to find an aspect of the story that I think is often ill not quite thoroughly considered and and part of and, and most of it i think has to do with with the psychology of the of the of the subjects in the situation can i jump in with a specific example portrait of nat turner with the head of his master in 2011 seems like a good example of what you're describing right so so i mean in in that scene so what is it you have to look at what it presents you with so it presents you with the figure of Nat Turner standing, looking askance uh, with a hatchet in his hand and the head of a figure on the bed. But it doesn't tell you anything about the narrative. <laughs> it doesn't really tell you whether he he's just there with the head of his master. It doesn't tell you that he killed him. He is holding a bloody axe. He is holding a bloody axe, but that's because he he may have killed he killed somebody else. He didn't have he didn't he actually didn't kill his master. Or he may have axed the door that is behind him on his right. Yeah, broken in. But he he did commit one murder, but other people did most of the work. Sixty and all, yeah. So, but the thing, but he was the leader. He set it in motion, and so what he must. In in a way, you have to you you have to guess about some of the ambivalence he might be reflecting on while he's standing there, you know. Oh, it's a great it's a it's a great painting. Yeah, it's one of your most confrontational by far. But that and it is, but it and it's confrontational without without being uh, sensational or even menacing. And it says, yeah, it's like I could you could show it, show him in the act of beheading. I mean, <laughs> you could do that, but that's gets beside the point in a way. And Baroque painters did that with Judith and Holofernes and it's been done. Yeah, I mean you can you can see that. But what I want is something that allows for a little more reflection on the totality of the event, uh, not just an incident within the event. So in most of my pictures you either have the image of the figure prior to or priest or or shortly after an action you don't see a lot of people engaged in in the action in in the paintings i'm doing so we're all familiar with your project to inject black people black life black culture in into the art historical canon that you do it well is why you have are having a retrospective at three distinguished museums 
And so among the art historical genres you've taken on have been portraiture, self-portraiture, history painting, abstraction, and on and on and on. Are there art historical genres or types that you have considered and maybe even started making paintings around and then decided not to address? Not yet. (laughs) Well, I ask because there's one area that it seems to me that maybe, well, two areas that maybe you've left alone a little more than maybe others, and, and those are still life, and there are, you know, objects within larger paintings, and landscape, and by landscape I mean landscape within kind of the, the very grand, very national, very unionist, often 19th century American tradition. Yeah, well, but there, there are a couple of paintings that, that deal in some ways with both of those things. I mean, if you take, there, there is a painting in the book called Still Life with Wedding Portrait. Which is not, I mean, you no, know, it's it's unconventional in the I, in the in the genre of still life, and there, and the the studio painting, the, the big studio painting that's with the Met has on the table there something that you could consider fairly conventional as a still life. Yeah, there are even even in the early '90s, there are little groupings of objects right within no... within a picture, and then as far as landscape is concerned, I mean. Certainly uh, not in the picture, not in this show, but there's there's that beach scene with the couple standing on the, the sand dune with the sunset. There's also another seascape with two figures walking near the water and one sitting on a piece of driftwood. So, but that one's not in the show. <laughs> but those are less engagements with the 19th century American tradition than they are with a a to my mind, a really different 20th century tradition. I mean, there are no... But they do, and I only mention those because they, at least they do. So here you now have, you have the figure as, as the, and in particular the, the one that's not in the book, you have, you have figures that are at a scale in which they are sort of, you know, the landscape or the seascape is kind of the dominant image. But no, I, I, if, if you're thinking of taking on the landscape like Bierstadt or something... <laughs> That kind of thing. No, I haven't done that, and not for any particular reason, except that it just takes time to get two things when you're working on a lot of other stuff. You know, it just, and I'm I'm slow to make a picture when I make pictures. They take I spend a lot of time on a single picture. Last thing in your in that Archives of American Art interview that was recorded almost ten years ago now, I think. 2008. There's a detailed description of your experience as a 10-year-old boy of the 1965 Watts riots. And it's a striking specific account full of detail that that historians, and certainly not just art historians, will mine for, for many generations. It's really great. And one of the things that you mention remembering with clarity to this day is a jack-in-the-box clown, the, the former iconographic element of the fast food chain, up on a post, you know, on an elevated, you know, 40 feet up in the air. You said in that archives interview that you have been trying to get that memory into a painting for many years now. Have you succeeded yet? <laughs> I haven't done it. Nope. I haven't done that. No, that was one I never, I never got back to uh, doing that can't say that I won't ever, but that that one hadn't hadn't come up. <laughs> but may still. It may still because it may find its way into the Rhythm Master comic or something at some point, you know, as a as a kind of 
a scene and an environment. But no, I never. I I want. I always wanted to make a picture that was a reflection of that image, but I never. I never got around to it. So this this question is going to sound rude, and I certainly don't mean it that way. But what's so tough about it? What's so tough about getting that into a picture? What's the challenge? What's the difficulty? Well, it's not so much that it's a it's a talent challenge. It's that right now, it doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be much urgency about that particular image. I mean, and you could in part because you know the uh, you know a lot of people may not be so familiar with the, the Jack in the Box. The their profile has changed. <laughs> they don't use that clown on the post like they did before anymore. You and I both grew up in California. Jack in the Box didn't exist out here. Well, and yeah, they they don't have Jack in the Box in 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 Chicago or in New York. And it seemed so tied to a very specific moment in history and to a specific place that unless I was going to do a work about the riots again, it it's you know, I, I haven't been able to, I haven't seen that there was any other other reason to, to resurrect that image. Carrie James Marshall, congratulations on the show, and thanks so, so much for talking with me again. All right, Tyler, thanks. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.